Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. So we're a week and a half from the election day. It's hard to believe, huh? Ten days and, until the election gets contested and goes on for another three months or so. so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You say that and 50 million people have already voted and you know, who knows how many more before we get to election day. And then as you say, how long after the process will go, it's, it's election season, maybe before Christmas, we'll have the thing worked out. That would be nice. Before January 20th at yeah. the latest, right? At the very latest. Okay. <laughs> the last two weeks we've spoken about the presidential candidacies of Joe Biden and Donald Trump in light of Republican principles. And so this week, we're going to take a look at the case for voting for neither. And so let's get right to the headlines. A National Review, doing us a favor, published three pieces in the last week with three different answers to the question, who should I vote for? So Andrew McCarthy uh, wrote a piece in favor of voting for President Trump for re-election. Ramesh Panuru wrote in favor of voting for neither Trump nor Biden. And Charles C.W. Cook explained why, at least at the time of writing, he still hadn't decided who he was going to vote for. So everything but a case for Biden, but we covered that a couple of weeks ago. We looked at George F. Will on that from a conservative perspective. So we're going to focus on the Panuru and Cook pieces since we're looking at the none of the above argument. But we want to begin by at least summarizing what McCarthy argued and kind of reengaging the argument in favor of President Trump, since both these other two authors are, in a sense, responding to that. Uh, there are people that might otherwise vote for Trump. They're Republicans, conservative, libertarian types. And so could be a normal course of events expected to vote Republican and yet either aren't doing that or aren't sure if they're doing that. So let's look at McCarthy's case as he lays out uh, the argument for why he is voting for President Trump again. And he actually begins with the case against Trump. Uh, and he highlights two of the most common complaints about President Trump, that he is unfit from the standpoint of, of character in particular, and that he is unprincipled. And he more or less concedes these points by listing off a number of problems with President Trump that even the most serious never-Trumper would probably approve of. But then he writes, as the piece turns, we could go on, as some have indeed gone on in this vein for four years running. Yet this argument has always missed the point. The most compelling case for Trump has never been Trump. It has always been and remains Trump as opposed to what? And so he goes on to argue that because in his judgment, this is essentially a binary choice that you only really need to make a relative case in favor of Trump to justify voting for him. Uh, don't think about that vote as necessarily entailing a personal endorsement, but only a relative judgment that a Trump presidency would be better than a Biden one. And he says the relative case for Trump is rather powerful particularly because it's really the case against Biden. Uh, Biden is, is weak uh, physically. His abilities were always middling and his accomplishments lacking, according to McCarthy. His inability to stand up to the left in his party and the progressive radicals that have more and more controlled that party and the administration that would likely come in with him. So thinking about various cabinet secretaries that would fill various posts and and how that would influence policy. 
And then there's also the issues from abortion to foreign policy. The differences between Trump and Biden are significant and likely to be substantial. And in McCarthy's judgment, all the advantage of those positions falls on Trump's side. So that's at least the sum total or the outline of his case. And he concludes then, to make the election all about Trump is to ape the president's signature self-absorption. It is not a matter of liking or despising Trump. It's a choice between Trump and what the Biden-Harris Democrats would do to the country. It is not a choice that any of us can avoid. So I'm making it. I'm for Trump. What do you think, Dave? This somewhat modest relative case in favor of Donald Trump. Yeah, there are a couple of key lines that I, I really thought McCarthy nailed the case for Trump on. One was this, this line that, and as you mentioned, uh, in making the case against Trump, where McCarthy begins and says he cannot, not will not, but cannot distinguish between his own petty interests and the vital interests of the nation. So that's a kind of clear indictment of, of Trump. Uh, and then a second one, nor can he spot friends from foes, thus becoming infatuated with the rogues who flatter him and antagonistic toward allies anxious to preserve the post-World War II international order and America's stabilizing centrality in it. So that could be talking about foreign policy, but this idea that he can't distinguish uh, or doesn't distinguish between his own interest and the interests of the country, that's bad. And he doesn't do a good job of picking you know, friends and enemies, even though, as we mentioned a show or two ago, he lives this kind of, in this world where a friend of Trump is, is good, an enemy of Trump uh, is bad. So with that in mind, he, he then I think uh, does make a good case for Trump by saying the following. He may not choose good friends and enemies, but what he has done a good job choosing are people who are going to put into place policies uh, that are in the interest of the country. So there's this another section of his essay where he said, uh, should we follow the free market, economic, and financial predilections of Larry Kudlow or the authoritarianism of Bernie Sanders? Should we continue promoting economic innovation, including the natural gas production that, is, that has significantly reduced carbon emissions? Or should we follow Biden's confidant, John Kerry, back into the Paris Climate Accord while commencing implementation of the national suicide known as the Green Deal? Should we continue with the regulation slashing that has unleashed economic prosperity and lays the groundwork for recovery even from a once in a century pandemic? Or should we empower Biden ally Elizabeth Warren to reimagine capitalism and markets under the government's crushing demands and the Democrats' grievance politics? So I think that paragraph sums up what, okay, the policy makers and the policy decisions that Trump is going to choose are going to be in the best interests of the American people. So even though Trump confuses what his interest is and uh, the interests of the American people or thinks that they're one and the same, uh, we still should choose interest or advantage uh, in this case. Uh, even though Trump uh, can't distinguish between himself as a means and himself as, as an end, the end itself of the means he chooses are good for us. So not, not a bad case for him, even if you, if you didn't like him. Accidentally overlapping the interests of the people and the interests of the man. And I think Right. As you lay it out, and I think he does a very good job of this, imagining a Biden cabinet and comparing that to either the present people that are around President Trump or others that might be. And it's, it's very easy for a conservative to say, yeah, that, that does not sound good. And the Trump alternative sounds, sounds a lot better. So I think re recognizing that, the case that Ramesh Panuru makes against voting for President Trump 
the principal argument he makes has to do with character. And so he begins by complimenting Trump and agreeing with McCarthy on some points. So he says, whether we're talking about religious liberty, school choice, or Title IX, Trump's policies are much better than those of Joe Biden. On many issues, Trump has far exceeded the expectations I had when he won the 2016 election. I think a lot of conservatives would say the same. As you looked at the field in 2016, it was arguable that he was the least conservative candidate based upon his track record and some of the things he was saying early in the campaign. And if you were looking at the policy side, beyond matters of his character, he had real concerns about what a, what a Trump presidency would mean. And while he certainly has done nothing to alleviate those concerns, if you were worried about the deficit, if you're worried about entitlements and some of these kinds of issues on other issues, uh, he's, he's been either more or less traditionally conservative or at least leaned in that direction in ways that might not have been anticipated four years later. So he says all that. And then the very next line is, I'm still not voting for him. And so he continues to, to lay out the reasons why. It's not because I have exceptionally high standards for presidential candidates or yearn for the resurrection of the pre-Trump Republican Party or find it impossible to overlook some points of disagreement with Trump. It's not even because his continuation in office may in the long run prove destructive of conservative causes. So it may, but keeping the bird in the hand is a good rule of prudence. I'm not voting for him rather because his character flaws keep him from meeting the threshold conditions to be entrusted with the presidency. All presidents have lapses in judgment, honesty, and self-control. Many of them have even been wanting, at least sometimes, in decency and public spiritedness. Trump is alarmingly deficient in all of these qualities at once, and their lack is marked every day of his presidency. And so he talks about the sort of the dual consequences of this, first for our political culture, the, the, the coarsening of that culture and the broader consequences that have followed, but also in making his pursuit of even good policy is ineffectual, where he can't seem sometimes to get out of his own way when he, another course of action or just some measure of self-restraint would have actually allowed him to accomplish the thing that he seems to aim to accomplish, which may itself in that instance be a good thing. How, how do you think we should be thinking about character as we look at presidents, as we think about the candidacy of, of Donald Trump? Is it, is it fair to say character and policy can, can be sort of weighed as even factors, uh, as, as Panuru is suggesting here? Uh, or how, how do you think we should think about that, Dave? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that we should um, think about character as being uh, important and, and essential uh, in, in a president. Uh, I think the degree to which uh, that character is problematic or dangerous is, is also uh, should be considered. You remember the expression you know, that you used to say about certain candidates, you really want that guy's finger on the button? And, you know, I, I don't sense, right, that, you know, Trump, you know, having his finger on the button, so to speak, of, on nuclear war, because there was a lot of writing in 2016, 17, that, oh, no, you know, the world's going to blow up. Um, you know, that's not a button we've had to worry about with Trump. He said his finger on the button, the button's been his handheld device that he can't seem to get his finger off that button. Right. And, and I think that um, that has led to a coarsening. It has led to kind of a daily, um, a daily bombs, not nuclear bombs, but uh, types of bombs that are dropped upon people uh, and uh, that lead to that type of behavior, uh, among others. And I think that that coarsening will have a significant impact on our ability uh, to find peace with one another uh, moving forward uh, after the Trump presidency. So the question for me is, uh, 
are some of the things that he has said, um, are some of the um, uh, some of the courage that he has to say those things that others have have, have not been willing to say? Uh, does that outweigh uh, the uh, the damage that's been done uh, by uh, by his character? And I think that. Uh, that remains to be seen, you know, four, eight, 12 years from now, uh, it's certainly we're heading in a direction where it looks like that coarsening is going to continue for the uh, unforeseeable future. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that struck me, and, and this is true in 2020, maybe at least as much as in 2016, is just how many evangelical leaders have gotten behind Trump in kind of an unabashed way. You know, you understand those that make the case, well, he's strong on pro-life. Uh, he's strong on culture, other culture issues. And there's some other things that we can work with him on, religious freedom and those kind of things. And sort of recognize he's not our guy, but we can see the value of his candidacy or his presidency. You get that argument. But there's been a lot of evangelical leaders that have just embraced him wholesale and, and even gone out of their way to you know, talk about, well, you know, David was an adulterer and a murderer. And he was still used by God. You know, these kind of strained biblical analogies say, well, you know, David was also a man after God's own heart. One evangelical leader that came out this week and published a piece, very interesting, John Piper, author and pastor, recently retired from his church in Minneapolis, also the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. And uh, he wrote a piece where he doesn't really deal with the candidates by name, although it's certainly about the election. But he, he argues that, that Christians have missed something of the, the danger, the, the deadliness even of some of these character issues. So I'll just I'll share a little bit of, of the argument that he makes here. Um, so earlier on in the piece, he says, I think it's a drastic mistake to think that the deadly influences of a leader come only through his policies and not also through his person. This is true not only because flagrant boastfulness, vulgarity, immorality, and factiousness are self-incriminating, but also because they are nation-corrupting. They move from centers of influence to infect whole cultures. The last five years bear vivid witness to this infection at almost every level of society. And so he goes on a couple of paragraphs later, really pushing this point hard. Is it not baffling then that so many Christians seem to be sure that they are saving human lives and freedoms by treating as minimal the destructive effects of the spreading gangrene of high-profile, high-handed, culture-shaping sin. And he, and he goes on to suggest that the, the focus of evangelicals on issues of life and, and liberty, while, while important, have allowed them to overlook these issues of character that, that biblically are, are equally important, and in some cases more important than the issues that seem to animate the evangelical church and, and get the evangelical church engaged in politics. And so he, he writes, therefore, Christians communicate a falsehood to unbelievers who are also baffled when we act as if policies and laws that protect life and freedom are more precious than being a certain kind of person. The church is paying dearly and will continue to pay for our communicating this falsehood year after year. And, you know, you think back 20 years ago, when we were in the middle of the debate over President Clinton's impeachment, you, know, you, you couldn't go to church without hearing talk about character counts and you know, all the evangelical leaders that are out there in the public square, character, character, character. And some of the exact same people 
uh, or their successors as, as leading voices in the evangelical movement seem to have more or less abandoned that cause. And, and, and you, you wonder, uh, is Piper right that the church's witness has been compromised by this unwillingness to speak forthrightly about the faults of President Trump's character? Yeah, and I, well, you go, we use Piper's argument and apply it to Andrew McCarthy's op-ed. Is, is that an endorsement of Trump's character or is it an acknowledgement of his character along with a proper argument thereafter as to why we should still vote for him? So I, not to say that Piper's wrong, but I think there's a way that you could kind of speak to the things that Piper is speaking about and, and recognize the, the damage that's being done, but still kind of weigh the pros and cons of, of, of his administration and, and, and his person and still vote for him. Right. And I think that's, you know, what, what he's particularly focused on are those that seem to have just ignored yeah. that side of it. There's this, this strange case of amnesia where all the things that they said so forthrightly 20 years ago now are, are meaningless when a person who, you know, has, certainly has no claim to be better in qualities of character than Bill Clinton um, is now on your side on certain issues. Does that mean you just cover all those matters up and excuse them and ignore them as has been so often the case with respect to at least some strands of the evangelical church? Well, you can imagine, it, you know, just think about the, the hot news item right now, which is Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and, and everything that's circling that how much more an effective case against Joe Biden, Hunter Biden could be made right now um, had you had a person with a different character in the office making a case against uh, the Biden presidency or what, what that might mean. All right, let's go back to Panero's piece. So he's in the middle of making this case against President Trump. And we just discussed that he centers that case on character. But then he goes on and he adds some other layers to the argument. And so he highlights the fact that President Trump seems to both misunderstand and be incurious about the Constitution, the executive branch, our political institutions, just sort of the role that he has to play. We talked about this in previous episodes. Does he appreciate what executive power is and is not? He, he talks about particular decisions, the family separation policy, um, the way he tried to get the Ukrainian government to investigate Joe Biden, some of the particular um, provocative things he has said on race and religion, and 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 the way that that has ironically furthered the cause of political correctness by giving people reason to believe that if you're not a left-wing liberal, then you must be a racist or you must be intolerant of other religions, and so rather than pushing back on the intolerance of the left, he's actually given new fuel to that fire by at least showing the kind of intolerance that easily fits into the profile that they want to play. And it's one of the things that for years found perplexing about President Trump is that having been a lifelong Democrat and having lived in New York City, he seems to have never really understood the conservative position, the Republican position. And so when he became a Republican and he started to move in those circles, he sort of had the stereotypes in mind rather than the reality. And he's played to those stereotypes and ironically then reinforced those stereotypes and, and not the good ones, right? Not the, not the things that conservatives would be proud to be known for, but, but the things that they're accused of um, unjust. 
And, and yet Donald Trump has, has lent credence to those accusations that come from the left. And in that sense, Panuru says, actually been an ineffectual fighter against politically correct culture. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think there are some things in areas where uh, he's actually had some gains. I mean, criminal justice reform would be one of those, right? So, but it's some of these, you know, efforts don't get um, don't get highlighted, and I think um, some of them, you know, I think help will help to explain if if President Trump does win a second term, he's going to win win a term because he was able to to do some of these things quietly without recognition from others. Now, as he works his way down through this, he concludes by basically weighing the alternative. So he's, he's made his case against voting for President Trump. And so that leaves either voting for Joe Biden or voting for neither. And he says, and, and, and briefly makes the case, he can't vote for Joe Biden on the matters of life in particular. He, there's no way, he says, if there's a persuasive case for recognizing abortion as a grave injustice and voting for Biden anyway, I haven't seen it. So that, that's off the table. And so then that leaves him voting for neither. And, and so he gives kind of a, a defense of the case for voting for neither in a highly contested election where all the energy on both sides is, you know, you've got to choose, you've got to make a choice, you've got to you know, get in the arena, you can't just sit this one out. This is what he says in defense of a vote for none of the above. The voter who decides that neither Biden nor Trump deserves his support will be accused of irresponsibility, of escapism, of indulging a sense of moral purity, of wasting a vote. There is on this view an obligation to pick among the top two candidates. It is worth resisting this supposed imperative. If a vote that does not determine the outcome of an election is wasted, then every vote is wasted. And wasted all the more, I think this is an interesting claim, if it is cast for someone the voter does not want to be president. The Biden supporters and Trump supporters who tell you it's a binary choice want you to vote as though the election result were wholly in your hands. If that scenario were not contrived enough, they implicitly add that at the same time, you don't have the power to elevate a writing candidate. You must imagine both that your power is counterfactually absolute and that you cannot choose options that are plainly before you. Write someone else in, voting third party, etc. If you're not Mitch McConnell or Kamala Harris, there is nothing you can do to keep Trump or put Biden in the presidency. What you can do is endorse one of these candidates or refuse. You can determine wholly which of those you do, the truth is that neither of these candidates is worthy of the public's trust, so don't vote for either one of them, and don't let anyone tell you that you have to. So what, what, what do you think about not voting in a, in a context like this, Dave, where such highly charged partisans on both sides? Well, I'd look at it a little, little differently, maybe if I'm understanding uh, him, him correctly. Not voting is actually a vote. Uh, and it's actually um, mathematically a vote as well, right? The difference between, you know, negative one, zero, negative one and zero is, is one. The difference likewise between zero and one is one. And the difference between negative one and one is two. And you say, well, why are you talking all this math? But the, the, the no vote is zero, right? It, he could have chose to vote for Biden, which it would have been minus one to Trump's cause or for Trump, which would be plus one. Uh, to Trump's cause. So um, I, I still see it as having a mathematical impact on the election. And thus, you know, one can, you know, you're kind of weighing your options and you're choosing a zero rather than taking away from Trump or adding to him. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think what's interesting is that often the argument is, well, no, if you, if you don't vote for Trump, it's the same as voting for Biden, 
right? And I think it's not. what you're showing is that it's not, right? There, there are actually three different options. And as you say, mathematically, they're very different. And, and if you were to say, well, let's, let's assume that the, the vote is exactly tied, right? And it's on your vote, then you get three different outcomes based on whether you vote for Trump, you vote for Biden, or you don't vote at all. And so it's, these are three different choices. And I think, I think he, he wants to say that. I think what he's trying to say is that, that the argument that was made, I remember this especially a lot in 2016, that somehow you owed your vote. If you're a Republican traditionally, you owed your vote to Trump. And that if you didn't vote for him, it was the same as voting for Hillary Clinton. And I think one of the points that Panu was making, at least implicitly, is no, candidates have to earn your vote, right? The fact that you're a Republican or you're a Democrat doesn't mean Biden or Trump, therefore, has your vote chalked up in their column and, and you have to sort of justify not giving it to them. You know, that they, you, they, they own your vote and you've got to give a good reason if you're not going to give it to them. That's not how the party affiliation works, right? You, you affiliate with a party for a variety of reasons, but the basic reason is because in, in general, you find that party's vision more persuasive than the other parties that are available to you. And so nevertheless, that party has the obligation to each voter for that party or for each voter in general to, to make the case, right? To make a positive case. This is why I ought to vote for your candidate rather than the other candidates or, or no one at all. And so I think what Purdue is at least building here is an argument for saying, look, it's not enough to simply assume that because you're a conservative Republican, that, that your vote is, is Trump's um, and that anything other than that is somehow a betrayal of a trust that you have as a Republican or responsibility that you have as a Republican. No, it's, it's, it's Trump's job, it's, it's the Republican party's job to, to make the case to you that you ought to retain that allegiance, that you ought to cast that vote and, and take that positive action to affirm the goodness of that candidacy rather than to take the default assumption that that vote is, is theirs and you somehow have to justify withholding it. And Potter's position, by the way, it, it's different than George Will's position that we covered two weeks ago because George right. Will is actively uh, encouraging, like uh, some other never-Trumpers, people to vote for Biden, which you know could make a difference, right? If done, right, in uh, hundreds of thousands, millions, as I think the Never Trump crowd would hope. Yeah, even even hundreds, perhaps, <laughs> as we saw in two thousand in Florida, three hundred and fifty or so votes, right? So you think about one hundred and eighty votes flipped. That's that's enough to turn Florida, which which turns the election. Before we move on from this point of of, of not voting, just want to you know one last thought on this from a very old old document. So. In 1643, Massachusetts passed what was essentially the first Bill of Rights on American soil called the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. And it's a very interesting document, a lot of connections to the eventual Bill of Rights, and a lot of those were by way of English common law and declarations of rights, Magna Carta, etc. But this is before the Glorious Revolution, before the English Bill of Rights, so it's a really interesting old document. But one of the rights that was protected was a right not to vote. And so I'm just going to read how they, how they put this um, as kind of a capstone on this discussion. In all cases wherein any freeman is to give his vote, be it in point of election, making constitutions and orders, or passing sentence in any case of judicature or the like, if he cannot see reason to give it positively one way or another, he shall have liberty to be silent and not pressed to a determined vote. So, so the right to conscientiously withhold your vote was something that was important enough in, in Puritan New England to be included 
in the Massachusetts Bodies of Liberty. So the last piece in this symposium was written by Charles C.W. Cook, and he explains why he's not sure. Uh, this is actually, he's just become an American citizen. This is his first presidential election he gets to vote in. And he says he would love to be able to vote positively and enthusiastically and, and you know, want one outcome or another, but he, he can't do that this time around, maybe, maybe in 2024. I think the best part of his argument is his analysis of, of the conservative movement. And I'm just going to read this passage here. And maybe as we cap this conversation off, as you just made the point about George Will versus Ramesh Panuru, and I think Cook's argument kind of fits into this as well. For a few years now, it has been clear that there are two types of self-described conservatives who are critical of President Trump. The first type is the conservative who has decided that if this president is in favor of something, it must by definition be wrong, and who has in consequence abandoned everything that he ever believed. For these people, this election is an easy call because there is nothing much at stake. Trump is bad, so is everything he touches. Time for a new guy in the White House, case closed. The second type is a tougher road to hoe because he has the same political beliefs as he did in 2016 or 2012 or before. He likes a great deal of what President Trump has done, if not said, but he worries that if given a second term, this president is likely to do a good deal of damage to the country and to the conservative movement. I am of the latter type, and it is not a great deal of fun. And he kind of repeats this point as he moves along, that, that there's this challenge of if you hold the same principles that you did before Trump, and you find yourself somewhat disoriented by, by Trumpian politics and the character issues that surround that, then, then, then what do you do? Uh, as you see some policies you like, but the character flaws side by side with that, you fear what a second term might mean, as so many second terms have been not good, and a second Trump term could be not good in, in new and interesting ways. Uh, and, a, and a democratic victory on the back end of that could undo whatever good was accomplished over these eight years. And so you find themselves sort of weighing through all these options and trying to plot a consistent course for somebody who thinks he's, he's staying more or less where he's always been and these political events are swirling around him. I, I, I don't find it hard to appreciate uh, Cook's dilemma, Dave. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, and I think, you know, he, he frames it nicely, too. He says, like, I was just hoping he'd change, right? You know, if he won, uh, won the nomination, he'd change. Uh, if he won the election, he'd change. Once he won, he'd change. <laughs> and he's like, this guy's not going to change, right? right. Um, this is who he is and who he's always been. And, and then later on in the same piece, he has not learned what he does not know. So, uh, that, I mean, Cook's piece is interesting, right, because it really, and we've done this a couple of times when we've talked about the president, right? Yeah, he's a person. He's a human being like the rest of us. He's complex. And um, getting to know who he is and kind of what archetype he, he fits into well uh, is, is essential uh, as you make up your mind as to whether or not you're going to choose to vote for him or not. So then I'll have more to say about this when we go into the required reading. Yeah, so let's do that. And as you say, you want to talk about the Trumpian archetype from some historical perspective. So what do you have for us today, Dave? Well, oftentimes, right, when, when people assess uh, Trump in a pejorative fashion, they'll call him, you know, a dictator, a fascist, uh, a, a totalitarian, authoritarian. And you see all these words kind of that uh, are used um, uh, with regard to, uh, to Donald Trump. But, you know, when I thought through, you know, what is that archetype and, and, and what are they trying to get at, uh, but, but by maybe not getting at in, in their description of Donald Trump, you think of the uh, kind of ancient conception or more ancient conception of the tyrant, 
a tyrant, not in the way we think about it today, but tyrant is kind of a, a personality type because there were tyrants that uh, ruled over various uh, city-states uh, in, in the Greek world. And oftentimes those, those tyrants uh, were sometimes beloved, you know, by the people who they ruled over. So different world, different time, a different understanding of the word a tyrant. So um, there's a great, perhaps the best work ever on ancient tyranny is Xenophon's Hiero. Uh, and, and in the Hiero, he gives us a depiction as to what makes the tyrant uh, the tyrant. Uh, and he starts by, by framing the conversation as to what a tyrant is uh, in terms of their private personhood. Uh, so this is from Xenophon's Hiero. Uh, Thus it was that Simonides spoke first. Well then, as to private persons, for my part, I observe, or seem to have observed, that we are liable to various pains and pleasure in the shape of sights, sounds, odors, meats, and drinks, which are conveyed through certain avenues of sense, to wit, the eyes, ears, nostrils, mouth. And there are other pleasures, those named of Aphrodite, of which the channels are well known. Well, as to a degree of hot and cold, things hard and soft, things light and heavy, the sense appealed to here, I venture to believe, is that of the whole body, whereby we discern the opposites and derive from them now pain and now pleasure. So here we're going to set up a conversation about uh, tyranny and the tyrant by talking about pain and pleasure and asking the question, does the tyrant uh, who has more access to pleasure thus live a happier life and have more ability to kind of um, uh, set pain aside, does the tyrant have uh, have, have, a, have a better and happier life uh, than others? And the answer that is given uh, in this dialogue uh, is no, uh, the, the tyrant does not. Because even though the tyrant has um, supposedly access to these things and to a, a greater amount. So he's going to be more likely to be able to defend himself against an enemy by hiring mercenaries or more able to enjoy in the feast of life because he has access to the power that gets him that feast. The tyrant is not happy. Why? Because the tyrant is never able to achieve a peacefulness in his person, in his soul. Uh, so later Xenophon writes, if peace is held to be a mighty blessing to mankind, then of peace, despotic monarchs are scant sharers. Uh, for them, right, war is a way of life. They're constantly at battle with others, and they're not free to enjoy pleasure. Uh, they're not free to uh, secure themselves uh, from the dangers that come along uh, or the perils that come along with being uh, a tyrant. Uh, later in that same section, uh, the tyrant uh, knows precisely the reverse uh, of happiness. He's the center of hostility. Uh, he, is, uh, he is because he is at the center of this struggle for power. Uh, he is never able to, to sleep uh, or to rest. And, and here's the key point, especially relative to President Trump. Uh, the ancient tyrant always has to have an orientation as to war. Life is a constant war. Uh, and I think uh, this, this kind of in part explains the reasons why many of, of us flock towards the president because there are battles we want him to fight. And these are places where he sees his interests, no difference between his interests and the interests of the American people and where others might not have gone there. He's fighting those battles. But then we become completely frustrated with him because he can never allow even his supporters to enjoy the peace. 
right? It's just one battle after another, after another. Uh, do you see a, do you see something here in, in Xenophon's description map? Yeah, I think you're right. And that's one of the challenges that, you know, you, you, you feel like, okay, he gives a great speech, you know, and then the next day we're back at the Twitter battle or there's an important moment in the administration, a moment of real accomplishment. And then he steps all over it by turning into some kind of partisan thing where it didn't have to be that. And there seems to be this, this constant need to measure the good for the community in light of the good for him and an unwillingness and inability to sort of step back and, and receive the praise that he would likely get for, for doing well. He's got to draw that praise out. He's got to draw attention to the accomplishment. And, you know, the, the, the line last night about uh, Abraham Lincoln, right? And this repeated invocation of Lincoln um, you don't have to be the president who has done more for African-Americans since Abraham Lincoln. Just do well, right? Do b- well by all Americans. Um, and that, that, that will be enough. But there's never a superlative nearly quite high enough for, for President Trump. And if no one else gives it to him, he'll give it to himself. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, the, the last part of uh, Hira that I wanted to reference was the remedy at the end where uh, Xenophon suggests that uh, if the tyrant uh, makes the public good uh, the true arena uh, of, of their actions, if, if, if the tyrant champions uh, the public good, then the tyrant will be able to enjoy uh, some of that happiness that uh, they have not been able to enjoy when all of, uh, all of the things they do uh, center uh, on their own person. I, I find it ironic, right? Because, you know, when we think of uh, President Trump and we think of his campaign in 2016, uh, he, he in a way has kind of uh, worked toward uh, this xenophonic remedy, right? Make America great again, right? Championing the country as the greatest country among all countries, uh, but can never rest satisfied. Uh, will it ever be great enough? Uh, it, it make America great again, but is there ever an again that we, we've gotten to and now we're keeping America great, but there's this constant struggle and constant war. And I think we all feel that war. We feel like we're at war and we want to enjoy peace. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think everyone you talk to right now is just exhausted and, and, and can't wait for the campaign to be over. <laughs> and we all know, as we were saying at the beginning of the show, it might not be over for, for months yet. And yet we sort of hope that it, that it could be and that we could move on with other aspects of our lives. I mean, it's ironic here. We are doing a podcast. We don't have to do this. We don't have to talk about this if we do it to a podcast, but, but yet there's still that, that level of desire to, to find some, something we can praise, something that we can enjoy together. Wouldn't it be nice for the United States, for the people of the United States to have something they could enjoy together? You know, you think about whatever it is, uh, the, the, the miracle on ice, right? So, you know, some of those moments where, not, not in tragedy, not, not on 9-11 coming together, but something that's just like spontaneous celebration. Here, here's a really good thing that red and blue and left and right can all affirm together. And that just seems very elusive. The thing that comes to mind for me is a vaccine. 
but you know, when the vaccine comes around, right. you, you know, we're not going to be able to even celebrate that because I'm not taking that vaccine if he's for it, if, you know, right. or I'll take it if he, and you can't even agree upon something that would um, help us get back to life. That's, that's, uh, that's disturbing. Yeah. That's a great one because that really should be a celebration. And, and you think about the normal timeline for developing a vaccine and if instead of it being three or four years, it ends up being one year or nine months. Or, I mean, that's an extraordinary achievement. You know, this is the Manhattan Project, except for, for saving lives. And, yeah. and so that, that's really, really something. But, you know, President Trump won't allow it to be a national achievement. It'll have to be his achievement. And the left won't allow him to enjoy the credit for it. They'll have to come up with some way of, of spoiling it, whether it's by doubting the scientists or by saying, well, it was really this person or that person who's really, well, whatever, right? There's, there's no room for magnanimity on, it, on any side. And so rather than spontaneous enjoyment of, of a glorious deliverance and wouldn't be the worst thing for some actual thanksgiving to God for, for that, which would be another opportunity for unifying in thanks, uh, very unlikely to be the outcome of all that. An arc of history mentality to, to war, peace, and justice, which is just yeah, dangerous for the Republic. Very good. Well, now we turn to the grade book and no escape yet of the campaign season. So we've committed ourselves over the last several weeks to, to grading the debates as we have debates. And so we did what have one last night. We've, we've mentioned it briefly, uh, but we had certainly a very different event, I think it was, than, than two weeks ago with Kamala Harris and... Mike Pence, and even more different from the week before that, when Biden and Trump squared off and Chris Wallace tried to keep order somewhat unsuccessfully. So what did you make of last night, Dave? Let's, let's start with the, the president's performance. What would you grade him this time around? Yeah, I think that he uh, definitely was, uh, was more sober. Uh, he was less caustic. Um, he was uh, all of those things that when we talked about two weeks ago that, that he needed to be in moving toward presidential, uh, he there was more of a presidential stature um, uh, to his bearing uh, and to his being. Uh, I think that uh, he had uh, some, you know, particularly good points in, in bringing up uh, the question of um, energy policy. I think there um, they've got to hammer away at that. So, so doing that uh, was a good thing. Um, you know, the Hunter Biden was mentioned, um, not, you know, not mentioned, you know, uh, in a way that turned people off, but in a way that um, would, would give pause. Uh, I was super excited. This is my grade of Trump, but that you actually had a moderator that kind of followed up and, you know, asked questions. That's, that's a first for, I think, a democratic politician this year. So <laughs> yeah. the, the, those were all good things. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, he, he has difficulty with, with the moderators and, and I think that um, she, um, she allowed him to have a good performance and, and he had a good performance. So B minus B, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd give the grade right around the same. I'd say, I'd say a B. I agree that at the end of the debate, he certainly drew some political blood with getting Joe Biden to talk about getting rid of oil. And he emphasized it. He, he, he knew he'd drawn blood. So, oh, this is big. And then Biden responded, it is big. So that, that was for real. And all the post-debate spin by the Biden handlers is going to make that go away. I think that's, that's going to have potential influence on the overall outcome of the race. So that that's, you know, you go into a debate like that, looking for one of those moments, looking to, to score a, a lasting point. 
debates are usually unmemorable, but if you can get something on tape, if you can get an admission, you can get re reshape the, the, the lay of the political land a little bit in a way you can build from in the days that follow, that, that's how you turn a debate into a, a race-defining moment. And there's a possibility, I think, that that happened with the discussion of energy at the end. I thought it was interesting to see Trump really go back to 2016. I don't know why he hasn't done more of this. I thought it was very effective. The, I'm not a politician. You know, that, that point where, where Biden says, hey, we shouldn't be talking about our families. We should be talking about your family. And he goes into the perfect kind of scripted thing. And, you know, the, the one way to respond to that is to do your own version of it. And, but Trump just sort of, you know, no, we're not doing that. Come on. I know we all know you're playing a game there. This isn't for real. This is just a politician speaking. And the refrain, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? You were there for eight years and you were there for 47 years. Why didn't you do it? You know, some of that, there's more to say. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not the, the final word on those kind of issues sometimes. There were Republican Congresses or whatever. So not that Biden doesn't have an answer for that, but I think it's overall effective. And it would be more effective, of course, if Trump hadn't been president the last four years. And so he should have the same record of accomplishment. And he's still talking about things he wants to do. But I think, I think it did recapture at least some of the, the interest of the Trump campaign. So much of the, this campaign has felt like it's negative. It's, 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 it's the dark side. And before in 16, Trump seemed to be able to kind of excite people, energize people. Hey, let's, let's do politics a different way. And, you know, I'm not a career politician. I'm not going to follow all those tropes. That was sort of a positive thing that he could get the campaign around. And he tried to, I think, recapture some of that last night, I think fairly effectively. All right. So, and I agree with you on Kristen Welker, by the way. I think, you know, she did a very nice job. She was well-prepared. She had her questions written out. She was ready for their moves. It helps to do the second debate, right? Because you've seen how they, how they deal with things. You know, you're, you're kind of ready for their well-scripted responses, but she did a good job following up with those. She let them speak. Uh, overall, I think it was, it was as good as you can expect, right? For somebody who probably is voting for Biden. Um, yet, I don't think Trump had a lot to complain about relative to other Republican candidates in the past. All right, how about Biden? What grade would you give him his performance? Well, when we put the rubric together a couple of weeks back, I think we talked about miscues. The, uh, the more miscues uh, throughout the debate performance, the, the more likely the, uh, the grade is an F. And certainly the, the oil comments were, they weren't just like one miscue. They, that was a huge miscue uh, that, you know, maybe too late or may not be utilized the right way from the Trump campaign. But, but that whole discussion could very well make uh, the performance a D or an F uh, if it's allowed, uh, if it allows President Trump to drive that point home. Uh, I think some of the other stuff, um, you know, there, it just uh, was a little bit, you know, all over the place, uh, but and nothing that was, you know, going to get him in trouble like the oil comment. So I, I, I'm going to say like a D plus, uh, and, and it could be worse than that for, uh, for Joe Biden, depending on what happens next. The grade is a little bit of an incomplete at this point. I think it, it's possible that the oil comment, and also I think what he said about the Hunter Biden story is, first of all, denying any benefits, any connection. So, you know, he's, he's on the record very clearly there, and, and yet we're having this, you know, daily leak of new emails, and now we've got texts. We've got one person on the record, a partner who says Joe Biden's involved. So that, that, that story is not going to disappear. 
whether the mainstream media will go after it hard until after the election, I think that's more dubious. My guess is the minute the election is decided, they go after him. They don't really have any real stake in Biden. They want Democrats in office. They'd rather have Harris probably. So, you know, that, I think all of a sudden they'll find their, their media scruples as soon as Trump has been dispatched, if that happens. But uh, for now, there's a striking degree of incuriosity about these things outside of a few corners. Uh, you know, Wall, Wall Street Journal has been doing some good work on this. So I think Biden could have gotten himself into trouble but I think he's probably going to be avoid, able to avoid some of the worst of it just because the way the media seems to want to circle the wagons for the last 10, 10 days or so. So I'm going to give him a C. But again, I, like you, I, I think it could be much worse if, if things trend in a certain direction. If, if he loses Pennsylvania because of what he said about fracking and oil, that could be the whole, the whole race, in which case this is the worst debate in modern presidential history. Uh, to lose an election based on two minutes at the end of a debate would be would be really striking blunder, but it's possible, uh, not outside their own possibility as the race stands today. Well, that brings us to De Tocqueville's crystal ball, where we try not to fall flat on our faces making sports picks. It's been a tough, tough couple of weeks, Dave. Although, look, I mean, baseball season overall, we did pretty well. Right? I, I got my two teams in the World Series. We'll see how it turns out. But I've got Dodgers against the Rays. I said Dodgers. You said Dodgers would make it. And then you had Houston, who made the seventh game against the Rays. So, so that, that's pretty good. But these week-to-week picks leave a little bit to be desired. We were both two and three last week. The one that hurt us, the Exeter Chiefs, won the European Rugby Championship. We should be able to celebrate that, right? And we should have been out there with all the faithful in Exeter, whooping it up. And yet, we had that feeling like you do when your fantasy team loses, even though your favorite team wins because they didn't cover the spread. And so we lost, right? We went down to two and three because they only won by three points rather than five and a half. So it's hard. I mean, I think now if you're, uh, if you're a gambler, you should just go with the opposite of what right. I say. And you, you've been making yourself some good money here. So. That's kind of the Costanza approach. Just exactly. whatever your impulse is, do the exact opposite. Sure. So I'm 18 and 12 overall. So I, I mean, I, I'm kind of riding on some early week success. You're at 10 and 20. So we won't go talk about that too much. But, but here we go. Round, round seven. Uh, we've got World Series game three tonight. Dodgers at the Rays, still in Texas. Dodgers basically making a home in Texas at this point. Clayton Kershaw's loving it. I guess it's like 15 minutes from his, from his home. So we got Walker uh, Bueller going uh, for the Dodgers tonight against Charlie Morton for the Rays. Really juicy pitching matchup. Who do you think, Dave? I'm going to go with the Rays. I, I think that uh, – I, I don't know why the Dodgers went with a bullpen game – on game two, I, I, you know, they seem to have this one, um, the series kind of in hand. And yeah. so I, I think there's a, some momentum on the race side and, and I can see them continuing that momentum. I'm not saying that that means they'll take the series, but they're going to, I think, work off of that game two success and, and take it tonight. I think it's been a great game. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the pitching matchup. You know, Bueller can really deal. I don't know. You know. He doesn't get a lot of pitches necessarily. So he might only do four innings, 10 strikeouts. And then we'll see what the Dodgers bullpen can do after that. But I'm going to take the Dodgers. I think they can hang in there. Uh, the Rays can definitely score runs in bunches here and there, but their offense is so inconsistent. I think, I think tonight maybe they can't find their stroke, and it's a 2-1, it's 3-1 a kind of win for the Dodgers. 
All right, the Big Ten is back. All 14 teams of the Big Ten are back. We've got number 16, Michigan, at number 21, Minnesota. Delicate at this time of year, right? You know, who, who does President Trump root for? I suppose you have to go with the extra electoral college votes in, in Michigan and just write off Minnesota at this point, you know, 16 versus 10. Michigan's a three-point favorite, but they're on the road at Minnesota. What do you think, Dave? I'm going to go with Michigan. I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I like uh, their chances going in there. Uh, I wonder, I, I'm not sure, I haven't seen this yet, whether they'll let fans into Minnesota State uh, Stadium. So what will the home field advantage be yeah. uh, for the Gophers? So I'll go with Michigan as the better team. Yeah, this seems like just one of those seasons where whatever you think you knew about college football is probably wrong, except – that Clemson and Alabama <laughs> will be awesome. Yeah. So beyond that, I don't really have confidence in any other team. Uh, you can kind of throw the rankings out the window. We'll see. Maybe Ohio State's in that category as, as things move on. But there seems to be so much uncertainty and so much up and down week to week, COVID testing or, you know, just the stress levels of all this and just the unusual quality. I mean, 18 to 22-year-olds, you know, under conditions they've, they've never had to play in. I'm going to take Minnesota. I think, I think being at home – it's going to give them the edge with three points. You know, that's a little extra. Um, so probably a close game. But I think, I think Minnesota might just win. Okay, number three, NFL Seahawks at the Cardinals. This will be a fun one. Just been flexed to Sunday night. Seahawks are a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Russell Wilson, unbelievable this year. He said, let, let, let Russell cook, and they're letting him cook. Uh, but Kyler Murray also looking really good for Arizona. Another, another promising young quarterback. A lot of really talented young quarterbacks around the NFL. So that's fun too. Uh, what do you think, Dave? Yeah, I'm going to take the Cardinals. I, I actually think Kyler Murray really is the, the real deal. This may be one of his statement games. Uh, the Seahawks defense, as we saw when they played the Patriots um, weeks back, is, is uh, not the strongest defense in the world. Probably a high-scoring affair, 38-35, something like that. But uh, the Cardinals, uh, you know, win a win a statement game for the franchise. Okay, well, we're going to be three for three in terms of making opposite picks. I'm going to take the Seahawks this time. Used to live out there, enjoyed the Seahawks back in the mid '80s and the days of Kurt Warner and Dave Craig and Steve Largent, and um, had some had some good times. We actually went to the Kingdom one time and watched watched the Seahawks there play the Chargers. So I've got some sentimental reasons, but look, Russell Wilson's just unbelievable. His receivers are incredible, and I think they can, they can score enough points. I think Cardinals will, will not embarrass themselves, but I think Seahawks can win by a touchdown or so. And, and as our faithful uh, listeners know, you're a Seattle Kraken fan as well, so from I, way, way back. So. That's right. <laughs> I've been a huge Kraken fan. It's almost as long as I, that friend has been around, I have been a big, big fan of the Kraken. So, number four, this is going to be a new feature, NFC East Matchup of the Week. We, we have this division that seems like it's going to try to break every record for futility. I don't know that anyone's ever won a division with worse than an 8-8 eight and eight record, but it seems quite possible that 6-10 and 10 or 6-9-1 you know, and one if you're Philadelphia might, might do it this year in the NFC East. So, we've got four terrible teams. We've got last night's matchup, you know how that, that debacle – Two and four Cowboys at the one and five football team. Don't even have a name. Who takes it, Dave? It's a pick 'em game, naturally. No one wants to bet on it anyway. So what do you think? Who's who's the winner? Cowboys or Washington? 
I'm going with the Cowboys. Yeah, I'm, I think uh, Andy Dalton kind of gets together a little bit uh, in his second start. Uh, maybe gives Cowboys faithful some hope that uh, they can win that division and, and, and do something in the playoffs. Yeah, probably Ezekiel Elliott won't fumble twice early on at least. Hopefully but I, my, my, my goal is for the home team to win the divisional matchups than the East. I think that's the best way to minimize the overall number of wins. And if they lose all their games outside the division, I think it's still theoretically possible we could end up with a five-win team winning the East. So I'm, I'm not really going by analysis here. I'm just – this is what I'm rooting for. So I want Washington to win. There's not really a good reason why they should win, but both teams are bad, so why not? Washington football team, two and five, coming out of week seven. All right, well, last one. You know, we worked hard last week. We got, we got, we got rugby – and you mentioned badminton. And so, I, I, I mean, I scoured the internet looking for a, a good badminton match that we could talk about. But unfortunately, as you know, the Danish Open wrapped up last weekend. And so we're kind of be, between big badminton tournaments. And so I couldn't find the match that we were looking for. I'll, well, I'll keep my eyes open. But in the meantime, we're we'll have to settle for a second college football game. There's a few in-state rivalries, kind of fun matchups, early on this year rather than that last week of the season as they often are. So we're going to look at number 23 NC state at number 14, North Carolina Tar Heels lost uh, badly last week, at least relative to expectations. It was a close game, but they lost to Florida state who would look like they were pretty bad going into that game, but they're a 15 point favorite at home this week against, against the Wolfpack. What do you think, Dave? I'm going to go with, uh, 15 points. I'm going to go with NC State. So I, mean, I think that, uh, yeah, that's a lot of points and you know, they can uh, keep it close. Yeah, I think they can, yeah, I think they can make that with 15 points. Yeah, 15 points is a lot. I, I agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to make this five for five where we take the opposite team, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to take North Carolina. Uh, one common opponent, state lost to Virginia Tech 45 21. North Carolina beat them 56-45. So we know one thing, 45 points will be scored by one team. Maybe both of them will get past that. Seems like neither of these teams has, has the defense to stop anybody. But I think, I think North Carolina is going to right the ship after the embarrassing loss last week, get back on track. It's at home. So I say they, they, maybe it's a 17-point, 21-point win, but just enough to get the victory, get the bragging rights, and – cover the spread all right well that is it for this week's episode next week we have our big election preview we will go through our maps as we predict what will happen on tuesday and beyond in the meantime we thank you as always for listening don't forget to subscribe and review the show on apple podcasts google play spotify and stitcher and we'll look forward to talking to you next week 